Welcome to the Run for PRs podcast. This is your host, Victoria Phillippe. The Run for PRs podcast was created to give away the secrets to transform your training to reach your goals. We ask all the expert run coaches and athletes the questions that you've been dying to know the answers to. We will get the inside scoop on what really makes you the best athlete that you can be. Have you ever seen a fast runner and wonder, wow, how did they get so fast? Well, then this podcast is for you. We are going to do a deep dive to reveal the secrets to reaching your potential as a runner. It's fall racing season, and a lot of people are gearing up for their fall marathons or half marathons. Um, sometimes people decide that they're going to travel to a race because there's lots of big races going on, and sometimes people just don't live locally where there is a marathon or half marathon um, that they want to run. So one big one that's coming up um, this upcoming next weekend is the Chicago Marathon. It's a world major, um, so this might apply to those people, but this is a podcast where we're just going to go over how you should travel to a race and things to kind of prepare for. We're going to talk about if you drive there, if you fly there, um, kind of navigating your way in a new city while also, you know, preparing to run that big race that you have. And just the tips that we've learned over the years, um, it's going to be me, Coach Victoria, and then Coach Jason is with me. We have traveled to world majors before and we've done a lot of traveling to races and we're just kind of sharing the knowledge that we've learned over the years um, with you guys to help you kind of like ease the nerves and just enjoy your trip uh, to your race and then have the best race that you possibly can. So I guess we're just going to kick off with starting um, talking about if you're driving to your destination. So this kind of applies to if you're going to be driving in a car for longer than, you know, two to three hours. Um, so if we were running Chicago this year, you know, Minneapolis to Chicago, we did that. It was our first trip together back in 2012. Um, how long of a car ride was that, Jason? I think it was close to six hours. So if you can get out of the city and arrive in the city without having there be a lot of traffic, you can make the trip in probably five and a half, but it's going to be at least six to six and a half hours. Yeah, that's really important to note that driving to Chicago. So in our case, we're driving from Minneapolis to Chicago and just kind of knowing um, when rush hour is and planning around, you know, you don't want to leave during rush hour if you live in the middle of the city and you definitely don't want to arrive during rush hour, especially in cities like Chicago. So if you think, oh, you know, I'm going to take a half day on Friday and then arrive at Chicago around 4 or 5 p.m., you'd actually be better off not doing it that way, in my opinion. Because um, I always like to avoid traffic and kind of go the route that's going to take the least amount of time. Um, so just planning for that rush hour. And for races that are occurring, you know, like Chicago, for example, it's on a Sunday. How many days in advance do you recommend driving or like what's been the best um, for you when you when you drive to races um, as far as how many days or hours before the race you should arrive? I mean, I think it's ideal if you can leave two to three days early. I know people have other commitments like jobs and you have to request time off of work. So plus it does add up in costs for every extra night that you need to, you know, stay in accommodations, hotels or Airbnbs or whatever. So I think um, I would recommend at least two days early. So if it's a Sunday race, you know, if you're driving on Friday and you get into the city Friday, that way you have all day Saturday to explore it a little bit and to get to the expo. Um, some people would like to get there, you know, it depends where you're coming from. So let's say your drive is maybe eight to 10 hours. Maybe you want to break it up into two days so that it's not one long drive. So you could do maybe a good chunk of it on Thursday and then the rest on Friday. 
Yeah. So those longer rides, that's going to be a little bit harder on your body. You know, sometimes when you're sitting down, a lot of people think, you know, you're recovering and relaxing, but really sitting in a car isn't great for your body. You know, they say sitting is not like the ideal position um, that you should be able to get up and stretch and stuff like that. So just things to keep in mind is like taking time to stop on your, on your drive. You know, you're probably going to be hydrating anyway. So it's good to, you know, stop, go to the bathroom and just making sure your legs aren't getting too stiff when you're in the car. Um, it's totally normal once you you do a long drive even if it's only two or three hours to kind of step out of the car and go whoa my legs kind of feel feel tight oh no what happened but just like foam rolling and then I recommend doing um like if you were driving out uh like on Friday or something maybe wait to do your run until you know after you're done driving that way you can just kind of like shake out the legs and and not feel as you know tight after sitting in the car um, it's just a nice way to shake out your legs. Um, and I think that's that's a great plan. Um, another thing is keeping in mind uh, nutrition. So if you're going to be sitting in a car, like chances are the places where you're going to be able to stop to eat are what? Like gas stations, yeah. fast food. So just be really aware of that. Um, if that's not something you're used to eating, which I assume a lot of people listening probably don't eat McDonald's on a regular basis, just know like your options are going to be very limited. And what sort of advice do you have there, Jason? Well, I'm, I'm probably an over planner. So I would look at a map ahead of time and look at, you know, where are the major cities that we could stop at, um, for food and just plan your meals around that. Um, but again, if you're pretty limited, let's say you're driving through a lot of small towns, you, you may be very limited in what your choices are for food. So chances are there's hopefully a subway. So that's at least the, probably the healthiest option you're going to be able to get for fast food. But um, I would just plan ahead then with bringing whatever it is that you want to eat. So if it's sandwiches or, um, you know, making yourself smoothies and keeping it in a cooler and just really planning with a lot of different snacks um, to give yourself a, a wide variety. Right. And I think sometimes sitting in the car, it kind of throws off your whole routine. So what I recommend doing is, you know, eating a good meal before you get in the car and then just maybe having a snack after two or three hours and then finding a place to eat dinner, maybe right away after you get to the destination or halfway there, just depending on how long your car ride is. Because I think that's what we did when we drove to Chicago. We left a little bit after lunchtime and then we stopped about two hours away from the city um, to eat dinner, you know, at six or seven o'clock. And that worked out great because we were able to stop like in a suburb somewhere and just have like a full real meal. Because the last thing you want to do is like power through a six hour car ride, arrive at your hotel and then realize, oh, I, you know, I'm starving. My routine's way thrown off. I'm tired. You want to make sure you're getting that proper nutrition because part of training is getting that proper nutrition. And have you ever skipped a dinner or, you know, like a meal? Or have you ever witnessed that happen to someone? Like what what happens when someone just like throws off their schedule and doesn't eat, you know, two days before? Well, I, think, I think it can just really make you not feel your, your greatest and you get really negative and you can get hangry. And, you know, if you are doing Chicago, this is a good one to think about because by the time you get into the city, you know, you still might be a good hour from... Uh, by the time you're able to check in your hotel with oh, yeah. parking and traffic and all that. So there's a lot of suburbs as you approach the city. Um, <clears throat> so just keeping in mind, like, hey, it could still be quite a while before you get dinner. And then the other thing is when I remember when we got to one of the restaurants, the wait time was oh, ridiculous. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you really have to plan ahead and make sure you have enough snacks. And um, I would recommend maybe eating out in some of the suburbs if you're running a, a marathon like Chicago. I don't think it'd be as bad in other cities, hopefully not 
not as bad as in yeah, Indianapolis. Yeah, I don't think like Minneapolis or Indianapolis, if you're doing any of those, you're going right. to run into as big of problems. But I do think in Chicago and New York specifically, since they're world majors and even in Boston, like you run into this problem, um, finding a place to eat dinner, uh, make sure you're calling around and getting like some sort of reservation just because there's not, you, you might be going to a popular spot or section where it's like all booked up. Um, it's really good just to make sure you have something, even if you, you know, change your mind last minute or you find somewhere else to eat, um, you can always cancel your reservation, but a lot of the restaurants really do fill up and, you know, you think, Oh, I'm going to wait till I get to Chicago, you know, downtown where my hotel is or whatever. Um, Sometimes you'll be surprised there's not a lot of restaurants like within walking distance. So just making sure that you you plan it out ahead of time. And if you have any dietary restrictions, you know, researching those things. And these are all things that you can be doing during your taper week, which is great because we definitely have a lot of extra time and energy. And I think um, these are all things that sometimes when we're focusing so much on, you know, the race and traveling and all that stuff, we kind of forget. Oh, yeah, like let's plan out where we're going to eat. And like Jason said, I think stopping in a suburb before you even reach um, your destination or hotel, if you are driving. Um, would be the prime thing to do in this case. Yeah, a lot of times when we don't really plan ahead with reservations and stuff, we will eat dinner really early, um, maybe around like four o'clock to kind of beat the rush. And then room service. Then you can order room <laughs> service later at night so that you make sure you are getting enough food in. And so that way you're just avoiding that, that busy rush period between like five and seven, you know. Right. Yeah. And I think sometimes people, they'll think, oh, I'm just going to power through and hit up the city and we'll eat there. But yeah, sometimes it's better just to stop in advance. Um, Because if you know you're driving right by a place and they offer food and you're hungry, like just stop and eat. Um, That's going to be the best the best option for you most likely. Mm-hmm. Um, so then we're going to talk a little bit about flying to a race. So we covered driving to a race and how you want to, you know, stop, make sure you're stretching, um, getting out and, and hydrating and then planning your meals. So flying to a race is a little bit different. Um, it's probably, you know, it's going to take a similar amount of time, maybe even shorten your trip, but it comes with different obstacles. Um, you know, obviously like when you're carrying your bag onto the plane, like you can't bring like a cooler full of water and all that stuff. So um, I guess we'll just kind of dive right in. I remember the first time we flew to a race, I'm trying to think, it must have been Las Vegas. We we flew there. It was like my third marathon. And it was really weird like getting off the plane and like the next day, like my legs just kind of felt just different. I don't know. Can you relate, Jason? Yeah. And... Um... I think Boston, the first year we did it too, mm-hmm. was the same thing. We just felt awful on our shakeout run the next day. Yep. Um, and then somebody recommended to us that you should wear compression socks when you're on the plane. And so, you know, we did for every race basically there on after, and we always felt pretty good, I think, when we arrived in those areas. Um, so that's just something we've picked up over the years. Yeah, it's really interesting um, hearing about different research or hearing people talk about altitude and how it kind of like just flying in a plane can affect um, how you're feeling. Um, and I know it's also a place where there's a lot of germs and, you know, if you're if you're tapering, that can sometimes be, oh, you know, you don't want to get sick. So just making sure that you're being kind of conscious of all of those things. And I think the compression socks, they definitely help a lot with flying. Um, I'm not sure who told us that tip, but yeah, I would definitely recommend putting on the compression socks on the plane, um, taking them off when you're, when you're there. And, uh, same with when you're flying home too after, um, cause a lot of times you're, you're already trashed and destroyed from running the race. So it's just nice to, you know, have that blood circulating through your legs while you're up in the air. 
Yeah, definitely. And then I just recommend having, you know, if you're if you're flying, still packing some sort of like foam roller or stick device because you're probably going to want that when you get there because, you know, sitting in an airplane for a long time, it can kind of cause you to stiffen up and, and we're not going to go on like a super long shakeout run. So it's nice to have those tools available to you, especially if you've been using them throughout your training. I just really recommend, you know, bringing the things that, you know, are going to make you feel comfortable and carrying them um, either onto the plane or you can put them in your you know, your stowaway bag. Um, and then in terms of like eating when you're flying, I think that becomes, I, I think it's a little bit more challenging because in an airport, it's like you don't really bring a lot of food and then all the food that they have there at the airport is typically like stuff that you want to eat. You know, it's kind of like, ooh, like candy or ooh, like chips and all this stuff. Um, so it can be a little bit more challenging. Is, are there any tips that you have for travelers, Jason? Um, well, I know this will have to do with what time your flight is, but allowing extra time to eat at one of the restaurants at the airport so that, that way you get kind of a full meal. Just like we said before you head out on the road, you know, it's good to fill up. So that way you're not hungry on the plane and then you're, you're you know, buying the snacks that they're offering on the plane. So eat a full meal beforehand. Um, we also like to pack, like, and maybe in our one check bag that we check, we'll pack a few liquids like water, Gatorade, whatever, and just have some snacks in there too. So when we arrive and we get our bags, you know, it could be an hour or two before you get to your destination and have a chance to eat once you arrive. So having some in that check bag, I think is important too. Yeah, super important. So what I would do is as soon as you get through security, I would buy at least, you know, two water bottles. If you don't have one that you carry yourself, I just buy plastic ones, two big ones. Cause you just, you never know when the next time you're going to get water or see water is. I, I know that sounds kind of crazy, but you don't. So I would get as many waters as you feel comfortable purchasing at that point. Um, and then making sure when you pack your bag, you have like an electrolyte that you're used to using. So um, maybe that's you can or whatever, um, mixing that with one of the smaller bottles and making sure you're still replenishing those electrolytes and not just loading up only on water. Um, and then at the store, you could buy, you know, some snacks that you're used to eating throughout your training. Um, and I would just have like a big bag full because honestly, the time from when you get to the airport to when you arrive at your hotel or arrive in the city, it can get to be a long time. So even if you are eating at a restaurant at the hotel, you want to make sure that you have enough liquids, that you have enough like hydration and stuff to be comfortable and replicating exactly what you would be doing sitting at home or sitting at your office. Because the last thing you want to do is get like your routine thrown off and just say, oh, you know, mm -hmm. I'm not going to worry about it. I'm not going to think about it. Um, and then it's like you end up under fueling because we're getting so close to the race day that it's very, very important that you're still paying attention to your nutrition. Um, so I always bring like two to three different bags of snacks. I basically pack like I'm a toddler, you know, so for parents listening, like, you know what that means? Like you're always packing snacks for your kids. I like pack a ton of snacks for myself because it, and then even just once you get to your hotel room, it might be late. You don't want to go out and you don't buy stuff, but I guess that kind of goes into the next topic once the plane lands you get off the plane you get your luggage then the next step is obviously you have to get to your next destination and what are your tips here um well i always research ahead of time um how how are you going to get to the hotel so obviously you can you can rely on an uber or lyft um you can we've done super shuttle a lot where you arrange for a vehicle to be there ready to pick you up and to bring you to your hotel and that's really convenient um i would highly recommend that option you could also look at what other local like Metro Transit options are available if there's buses or light rails. Um, you know, I know Chicago's gonna have their light rail system. So depending on where you're staying, that could be an option for you. But um, 
I, I really think that one of the, the easiest factors, and this may cost a little bit more though, is, is to rearrange your transportation ahead of time, getting a, a company that does that sort of thing, like Alamo or Super Shuttle. So, um, cause they'll be waiting for you and then they'll take you directly to your, to your hotel. And sometimes they'll even offer if you need to stop anywhere on the way, let's say you want to stop and get food. I think the last trip we just went on, he offered that, didn't he? Um, that was for the Disney oh, yeah. Star Wars yep. race. So yeah. Um, Again, just planning ahead with that, and I always arrange that for our departure and our arrivals um, in cities that we're going to. Right, yeah, and Uber always comes in clutch nowadays. I think the first time that we went to Boston, like four or five years ago, like we Uber wasn't as big, and we got a taxi cab. And this is another thing that's really, really important. Um, if you're going to, cash. you know, yeah, cash, but also the rates of everything. If you're going to a major marathon, it's going to be through the roof. Mm-hmm. And same with transportation, like Ubers and all that stuff, even. Even at races like the Twin Cities Marathon coming up or even local races, um, if you have Uber in your area and there's a major event going on, like you're going to be paying a ton of money. So like we did, it was just a one mile cab ride back back in the day, our first boss in like 20, 2015. Um, and it was like $40 to go one mile and they required like cash only. So just making sure you're prepared for various transportations because it can kind of be a little bit of a headache. Um, but having cash, having things ready, just being prepared there. Uh, and then I think scheduling in a time where you're going to go to the grocery store and hit up the expo, because when you're traveling, it's really important to have food. Like we said, you know, unless you're packing everything that you need fuel wise, like in terms of breakfast in the morning and snacks, um, then, then that's fine. But we usually like to stop, um, at a grocery store to pick up some of those breakfast essentials, um, so do you recommend going to, so let's say you get to the hotel and everything. Do you recommend going to the expo right away? Or what do you think about like resting in downtime after traveling? Uh, I, I think it's really just going to depend on what time it is, how long your travel day has been and all of that. Um, if it's a busy time at the expo, I would, I would definitely wait, um, and just rest for a bit get some, you know, if you haven't eaten in a while, you would definitely want to eat. Um, oh, yeah, but let's say, you know, sometimes you may arrive at the airport and you have an hour to kill before you're you get picked up to go to your hotel. So maybe you eat at a restaurant there and you have that taken care of and you've had a little bit of chill time. And then it all is going to depend on where the expo is in comparison to your hotel. Right. And then what time it is and when the expo closes. And do you have to go on that day or can you wait till the next day? I think that's really important to note how you just said you're going to want to make sure you eat because you just traveled, you get to your hotel and then you're really excited, right? Because you want to go to the expo. That's like the next logical step. And I know for me personally, I've wanted to like skip eating or say oh let's eat after the expo and like you feel all right doing that but once you're at the expo and the hanger kicks in or like you forget um you can be at the expo for like two hours easily and not realize it Mm -hmm. so just making sure that you do eat or at least have a snack or something before you go to the expo like do not go to the expo without eating if you just got off of a plane that's my suggestion um because i know have we done that before in the past uh, I think so. And then you're looking for restaurants right near the expo and it just can become It becomes very panicky because then you get yeah. to a restaurant, you have all of your bags, you're I starving. Think we did that in Boston our first year. And you you guys that are listening, you know how crazy Boylston Street can be and how hard it can be to find a restaurant where you get served right away. So that wasn't very fun. No. So definitely <laughs> making sure like nutrition is top of mind at all times. Mm-hmm. Um, and then planning for the expo, you know, sometimes you arrive at these things late or same day and you have to literally go to the expo 
right away and then eat after. Um, that's totally fine too. You can make it work. I know one time we traveled to a race up in northern Michigan and we didn't arrive until nine or 10 o'clock at night um, the day before the race. And so in that instance, um, we had to have a friend or family member pick up the bibs for us. So if you know that's going to be you and the marathon or the race that you're doing allows for friends that are already there to pick up your bib, that's a great option. But really researching that because a lot of the times these bigger races, especially the world majors, they're not going to let someone else pick up the bib for you. So making sure that you've allowed it enough time to, to pick up your bib, go to the expo, do all that fun stuff. Um, and then another question that I had some athletes ask in terms of the expo and what should you do, especially with a world major expo like, like Chicago coming up here, do you recommend buying the apparel ahead of time um, or should you just wait to shop the expo or what are your thoughts on that? That's a good question. Um, it. It might depend on like a few factors, uh, your size, what it is that you're looking for. I think for me, I've never really had a problem with getting um, things in my size. You know, there's usually a good selection at these races, but if you're really counting on getting something, um, take Boston, for example, the jackets are going to be sold everywhere. So you can get them at, at shops on the street or at the sporting goods stores in town. Um, they're, they're not going to run out of jackets at Boston. So you don't need to probably worry about it there. I know most people like to order theirs ahead of time just to get it in the mail. Um, Chicago, I think, is probably the same way. They're going to have a lot of shops. Like, if you go to Nike, they're going to have Chicago Marathon-specific clothes there at Nike. So um, I probably want unless you're, again, arriving really late at the expo. Um, right. And then a lot of times, too, they discount their apparel pretty drastically after the event's over. So you could order it online through their website. Ooh, that's a pro tip right there. So if you're, if you're able to wait... You could probably order it online. I know Boston, they definitely discount their stuff after the fact. And usually they have most of the sizes remaining. Um, but I like to to also shop online. See if there's something that like you basically need to have. And you're like, I'm, I need this. Um, buy it ahead of time if you know you're going to buy it. But if you're just kind of scrolling through and you think some things look, look cute or you might want to buy it, just wait. Because when you get to the expo, there's going to be like... 400 times the amount of if you're going to Chicago that is or New York um not necessarily a small local marathon they don't have as much gear but they're gonna have a lot more available so don't get like suckered in think you have to buy everything that's online because I know especially at Boston you know they come out with this great gear online that you can see it and shop it for like three to four months ahead of time um, and it's really exciting and there's a lot of things that are great, but then you go there in person and there's actually like 10 times the amount of clothing and styles and vendors there with Boston specific gear. So sometimes waiting um, makes sense, but I always like to buy the jacket ahead of time. So if there is something that you see on the the website that you know you're going you're gonna to buy regardless, I would definitely go for it. Um, it's fun to get excited about it. Yeah, all those major marathons, they're going to have plenty of apparel. I know CIM does. Um, Chicago had a ton. Indy, I'm sure, has a lot. So unless you're doing a smaller race, I would probably just buy it at the expo. Yeah, totally. So I guess now that you've gone to the expo and stuff, uh, the next thing is what should the day before the marathon look like? We kind of want to chat a little bit about that before we dive in You know, to the, to the night before. Um, when do you recommend doing the shakeout run? Well, so some people like to take the day off before a marathon. So if that's you and that's what you've done and you think it works for you, then stay off your feet and do your shakeout, you know, two days before. Do a couple miles in strides. Um, 
But if you're gonna do your shake all around the day before, you definitely wanna go in the morning, I would say before noon at the latest. Um, you wanna give your body you know, close to 24 hours to recover and just to stay off your feet. Um, so get it done early in the morning and then you can go about your day, make sure you're properly fueling and hydrating and um right no that's great advice so if someone like let's say they forget last minute and then it's you know five or four o'clock at night or it may be getting to eight o'clock and they say oh shoot i forgot my shake out run what is your advice um to them this has happened once that's what she's referring to somebody that we ran with in college who got up to grandma's marathon and we're sitting around dinner at about five o'clock and he was gonna go out later and do he was gonna do an easy five (laughs) shake out run so we told them it's haze in the barn. There's nothing you can do now. It's going to alter the effects of your race. So just don't do it. So um, I would say you just want to just relax and, again, focus on nutrition and mentally preparing and, and um, you don't stress over trying to run squeezing a run at the last minute so yeah totally and at I least 20 hours before yep I agree with that a lot I think sometimes even starting at around the same time that you hope to start the mm-hmm. marathon or the same time of day that you're running um the next day it's always good to get your body kind of like primed up ready for that um just letting it know you know all engines are go um but just keeping it super easy like you know one mile or like 10 minutes 15 minutes I think before Chicago you guys went out you only did like a, a couple minutes right Oh, before the race? Yeah. Yeah, it was literally... I mean, it was cold that morning, so I think we did it to kind of warm warm our bodies up and not stay in there freezing. But it was probably literally three to four minutes just jogging around. Really short. Yeah, super um, short. And then it just kind of like gets the digestive going and all that good stuff. Um, and then just making sure you spend the rest of the day focusing on nutrition. And I think... Um, at what time in the day do you really recommend just kind of starting to take it easy and stay off your feet and just really kind of setting it in for the night probably like 4 p.m i feel like that's a good time and then the only thing you're pretty much going to do is eat dinner and get your get everything laid out so should people like sightsee or what do you recommend they do during the day i mean you can you can walk around a little but you don't you want to stay off your feet you don't want to put in like your your average number of steps are higher than that whatever that number is i know most of us have that number tracked on our watches but i would say you know, you definitely want to be less than 10,000 steps that day. Um, yeah, definitely. I agree with you there. I think sometimes when you're in a new city and you travel, it can be really exciting, especially when you have extra energy from the taper and you kind of want to go sightsee and do all this stuff. But staying off your feet is going to be the best game plan because, you know, you're running a marathon tomorrow and you want to have the most energy possible. And the best way to do that is to really just lay low. Um, I like to do the shakeout run, maybe hit up the expo in the early morning. And then kind of after lunch, just taking some serious downtime maybe you go on a short walk um, around two or three but then for the rest of the evening um, just really taking it easy and just kind of relaxing before the big event kicks off Um, and then what are some things like while you're in that relaxing time I think this is a really important time to plan and lay everything out the night before um, especially because you're going to be traveling you're in a different city things are a little bit different Um, so we kind of just want to talk through what the night before the race, maybe starting at, you know, 3 p.m., what things should look like. So when do you recommend eating dinner, let's say your marathon, I think the most common time is an 8 a.m. start. When do you recommend eating dinner? Um, it'll kind of depend on if you have a reservation or not, but because if you have a reservation, you're probably okay to go whenever that reservation is. Um, you definitely want to probably eat before 8, though, so you can get to sleep. But I think for us, we've always kind of d- gone to dinner early. Um, just so you can be back in your hotel room early and you can get to bed early. So, and if you are hungry again, like let's say you eat at four thirty or five, 
and then you're back in your hotel by six. If you start to get hungry by seven, you can just snack on something light or, or order room service like Victoria mentioned before. So um, definitely just try to not be out late and eat, you know, eat a solid dinner probably between four and six or seven at the latest. And then that's it. Yeah. Solid advice. Do you recommend drinking with your meal? Like what about people who maybe want a glass of wine or a beer? Like what is your recommendation as far as alcoholic beverages the night before the race? I mean, some people can get away with it. I would do what you've always done during training. So if you had a beer or a glass of wine the night before your, you know, your 18, 20 mile long runs and you felt great on those, sure, don't change it. But um, I, I definitely stay away from it. Just I don't want to get dehydrated. Um, but it depends on the type of person you are and what you're used to doing. Yeah, I've ran 19 marathons and I don't think I've drank before any of them. Um, even though, you know, sometimes before long runs, I'll, I'll drink the night before, but... Uh, yeah, I definitely recommend avoiding alcohol the night before. It might maybe just gives you that little extra boost and it makes you not dehydrated and not feeling weird. But if it's something that you do regularly and that's, it will make you, you know, feel like you're in your routine by all means go for it. It's not going to like make or break your race if it's something you're used to. Um, and then you said snacking later in the evening. Sometimes like what I like to do is take some of my leftovers if I have any, and then like you eat it a little bit later if that's an option. But I think eating dinner a little bit later in the evening, you know, six or seven o'clock at night that, that sets you up for success. And also just sticking with something that, you know, you know, you're traveling to a new rate or a new area. So you want to make sure you're eating at a restaurant that's friendly to your dietary restrictions. So, um, I think before, you know, 2016, we could pretty much get away with going anywhere. But then recently, since 2017, I have been gluten-free, um, celiac friends of my family, and I just removed gluten from my diet. And so traveling to races can be a little bit more tricky because I'm always looking for places that have good gluten-free menus. And just because there's a couple of things on the menu that are gluten-free doesn't mean it's a good place for me to eat. Um, same with people who are vegan. I think everyone kind of can relate to, you know, you go to a restaurant, there's only like one dish you can have. You want to make sure that they have gluten-free options or vegan options that are going to be something that you would eat before a long run, something high in carbohydrates that's a good filling meal for you. So researching ahead of time, finding a restaurant that works with your dietary needs and then ordering something that, you know, fits in with what you usually eat. Um, do you have any suggestions for what to order for someone who just has a regular diet, Jason? Cause I know you kind of I mean, have a go-to. Just stick with kind of what you would normally eat if you're at a restaurant back home. Um, so if you're used to getting like a pasta meal or maybe just like chicken with potatoes and veggies or a salad, just get, just get what you would normally get. Don't, you know, don't change it up and try something totally new. And, you know, I wouldn't go with like seafood if you're not used to eating that either. Um, yeah, never try anything new the night before the race. Like you can try a new restaurant, but order a dish that like you're used to. Oh, right. Don't, don't have something really spicy. Don't load up on fiber if, if these aren't things you're used to. And I know our registered dietitian, she recommends kind of uh, not not doing a ton of the green leafy vegetables the night before um, a big race just because you know the the fiber the fiber levels but eating what you're used to and something you've practiced with is definitely good so then you make it back to your hotel room after dinner and you have all of the stuff from the expo and like just everything's just scattered out how do you recommend organizing um, for the race the next day because you have the 
the bag that you're going to bring to the start, plus all the things you're going to be wearing. Yeah. Um, what do you recommend? Like when you, when you go to lay it all out the night before, because that's very important, you do not want to do it the morning of. How do you organize so that you're ready for the tornado of a marathon that is to come the next day? I mean, kind of like you said, I just separate it into two areas where I'll have my everything that needs to go in the bag will go in the bag. Like, um, you know, maybe I, I'm putting things like my salt tabs in there, my goose, um, Vaseline or um, what's the other anti-chafing stuff called? Mine's blanking. Oh, on my mind's blue. blinking on it too. But I might put that stuff in the bag and then uh, maybe like an extra pair of socks and just um, maybe clothes to change into after the race as well. Yes. And then um, I'd set aside everything I plan to wear that morning and layered, just have enough layers so that I can always peel stuff off. And a lot of times it's going to be throwaways that I don't care about losing. So I'll set all that aside, maybe with arm warmers, gloves, hat, whatever. Um, my plus, obviously, your most important thing: your singlet and your bib, or whatever you plan to race in, and your shorts, socks, and your four percent shoes, or whatever you race in. <laughs> How do you know what to wear the for the race, just based on the weather forecast? Because this time of year can be a little weird. You know, it could it yeah. could say it's going to be forty, and then you wake up and it's sixty, or you know, fifty degree weather. Some people they're they're confused. Like, do I wear shorts? Right. Do I wear a singlet? And I think. That kind of depends with how, you know, what are you comfortable racing in? Right. Um, and I know when I first met Jason, I thought he was crazy. When he would go out there, it would be 40 degrees and he'd be singlets and shorts. And I was like, what? I'm, I don't feel comfortable doing that. I would always wear, you know, long sleeves and, you know, tights, mm -hmm. um, long tights in 40 degrees. And I think, you know, we might recommend at where we're at right now with our running that you know a marathon you would wear 40 degrees what would you suggest wearing based on our experience and like where what we're comfortable with but that might not be what you're comfortable wearing so just taking this kind of with a grain of salt here um and knowing like your body because I know you know at Boston it, in 2015 and 2018 there were a lot of people who did get hypothermic because they chose to wear uh, shorts and a sports bra in 40 degrees and freezing rain. Um, where, you know, some people, they chose to wear jackets and they were the ones who were safe from the rain. So if there is rain in the forecast anywhere and it's below, you know, 60 degrees, I would definitely um, have a rain coat because that could be the thing that saves you from becoming hypothermic. So that's that's my biggest suggestion as someone who ran both of those years at Boston. Um, I almost got hypothermic the first time and I said, never again, pack the raincoat. You don't have to be a hero. Just because you see someone else on Instagram, they post their flat version of themselves and they're gonna wear, you know, basically the running underwear. <laughs> what are those things called? Like Just for the bun, the butt huggers, <laughs> bun huggers for women, like the, you know, basically like underwear, <laughs> butt huggers, and then like a sports bra because it's 40 degrees. That doesn't mean that that's what you have to wear. So I always like to think of um, what, so if it was 40 degrees, what would you wear on your long run? And then I would like take off a layer. So if it's 40 degrees out on your long run, you usually wear a long sleeve 
and a jacket and leggings. I would say, you know what, if you're racing this, maybe just wear the long sleeve and maybe do capris. So you're just kind of peeling off a layer. So what is your suggestion kind of based on that same logic? If it's, let's start with, um, should we start with the cold temperatures or the hot temperatures first? Um, the cold. Okay, well, so it, let's say it's 30 degrees. I think that's probably the coldest. we're only going to run into that for this fall. <clears throat> um, right. So like between 30 and 40 degrees, what is your recommendation for clothing? Um, it, like Victoria said, it kind of depends on what you would train in for a long run in those temps. But I think for guys especially, you're probably going to go shorts or like half tights just because I've never really heard of someone complaining about their legs being too cold, you know, so... Yeah. For lower body, that's probably, I would say, just always go with your shorts or your, your half tights. Unless for, it's, like, below 30. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if it's, like, 20 or something, that's that's pretty crazy. Oh, yeah. So um, I think the morning I ran in Chicago, it was, like, 29 at the start. But it warmed up quick when the sun came out. So um, most people wear shorts. But for tops, that's where I would, I would wear an extra layer. Just mm. because you don't know, like, if that sun's going to come out or what it's going to feel like. Um, and it's better to shed something if you get hot. So... Um, for me, I just like wearing arm arm sleeves, and I can get rid of those because that's basically like wearing a long sleeve. Um, but definitely, always I'm gonna wear gloves in those conditions if it's below always. even if it's below 45 or 48, I'm wearing gloves. Gloves I just are like a my must. hands to stay warm, and that's so easy to to ditch at any point if you're hot. So um, I'd probably I'd probably depending on how cold I might wear a hat. Um, I'm for sure gonna wear like a running hat no matter what, but it might be like a winter hat if it's like 30, you know. Um, I like to cover my ears if it's under 50. Um, that's kind of what I do. And then same with the gloves. If it's, if it's, if it's under 60, I might yeah, go with gloves to start. If it's in the 40s. Yeah, totally. Headband or headbands are great. Um, if it's in the 40s, gloves are great. And those are really important to start with because when you first start the marathon or any race, really, you're standing at the start line for a very long time. And then once you even do start running, you know, if you're following the pacing plan of a conservative start, trying to finish strong, you're going to be um, not really warmed up and ready to go, you know, for 45 to 60 minutes into the race. Um, so usually around 30 to 45 minutes, that's when I would ditch my gloves if I was getting too hot or, you know, you might start with a long sleeve and then throw it off, but making sure your bib is on the, the lower layer. Um, or in your shorts, yep. Yep, and then I think really at what... It just depends on your own comfort level and thinking back to when you've raced in the past or what you normally train in. You know, we could sit here and say what we would wear in different um, temperatures, but really it's going to come down to what you're comfortable with. And I think dressing in layers is the best option for sure. If you're if you're unsure and you don't know, should I wear a long sleeve or should I wear, you know, a tank top or a singlet? Um, I would recommend wearing that singlet, having your bib on your shorts, and then just deciding you know, during the race, if you're too hot, you can always ditch that long sleeve and have it be something that you're okay throwing away. Cause the last thing you want to do is, you know, be too cold or be too hot and be stuck in whatever you're wearing. So planning ahead, having layers. And even when you go to bed the night before, like we were originally talking about, I like to have different options for, you know, you might wake up and it's 10 degrees hotter than forecasted or you wake up and it's raining when it said it wasn't going to. Just being prepared for anything because the weather is definitely something that you cannot control on race day. You can only control how you respond to that weather. And so just really being mentally prepared and being physically prepared with different options is always great. Um, one other suggestion for 
if it's going to be sunny, which chances are it could very well be wherever you are, um, the sun is still, you know, kind of strong at this point. Uh, I recommend not wearing black just to avoid that extra beating of the sun. Um, we all know that the sun is, you know, very, very powerful. And you might think that that's not a huge deal wearing black or not, but it can make a big difference. Um, have you ever noticed the sun's effect in a late fall race, even on a cold day? Um, I don't know if I have, like, personally. Um, but I'm sure I've done, like, 10 miles or half marathons in September. And that's where I would see the sun would still be out and it's approaching 60. But it can feel like 70 just because of the energy the sun is beating down on you. So I definitely would, I'd wear sunscreen, I'd wear a white hat, something to cover your face. Um, and I try to keep as cool as possible. Yep. So just because it says it's, you know, 40 or 50 degrees, that doesn't mean, oh, it's going to feel super cool and it's going to be really easy. Um, if the sun is out, I would try to avoid it as much as possible when running. You know, if you're running Twin Cities Marathon, there's trees along the course. I would be hugging, um, that area just so that you don't have that sun beating down on you. Um, Chicago, I'm not really sure, you know, how shady it is, maybe with the skyscrapers for parts of the race, depending on where the shadow lies. Do you remember it being shaded or not really? Um, there was a fair amount of shade, but again, it was, it's kind of a blur because it's been what, eight years? Seven ago, years, seven yeah. Seven years, but um, all I remember was, and we're going to get into this in a little bit, is, um, and I didn't wear a GPS watch back then because I didn't have one yet, but um, people rely on that a lot when they do races like Chicago or in urban areas where there's a lot of buildings. And I think back to even Twin Cities last year, um, the first mile was way off on my Garmin. So those buildings can really throw off your pace um, if you're going off of your Garmin. So I would just use, use your body um, as like a gauger in terms of your effort level and how you feel. Um, and then you can look for clocks on the course as well. That's really great that you brought that up because I really wanted to discuss that on this podcast. Um, I know it always kind of comes as a surprise to some athletes who it's their first time doing Chicago, but your Garmin GPS watch is going to be virtually useless um, during the Chicago Marathon because what ends up happening is, uh, you know, all the big buildings and the skyscrapers it really interferes with the satellite signal. Um, I have experienced this myself just in downtown Minneapolis. So even if you're running the Twin Cities Marathon, your first mile might be way off on your Garmin. Um, if you ever do any other races downtown, I think I've heard of Philly having the same issues. Um, New York City, there's a lot of problems that athletes will run into with these GPS watches. Um, I know this summer I ran Torchlight. It was just a 5K, but uh, you know it said my second mile was three like 20 per mile and I was going you know 620 pace or six minute pace um so really just being aware that it is not going to help you um and it can kind of be a shock if you're not prepared for it so just mentally going into any race that's going to take place in a downtown setting knowing what's going to happen and my recommendation would be to go into the settings on your watch and turn off auto lap. So if you have a Garmin device, yeah. you can um, navigate that through your watch going into settings and turn off auto lap. And then what you can do during the race, if you decide you want to lap every mile manually on your watch, or you can lap, you know, every five miles, what do you recommend Jason? Or should you just let it run that way? You can just look at the overall time and then do math at mile splits or do you recommend yeah. a pace band? I think for that race, like if I was doing Chicago, 
or where I know that there's going to be a lot of buildings, I won't even, I'll turn it off like you said. And I, I won't worry about getting my splits manually because you're going to forget, I'm sure. You're yeah. going to just, you're going to forget as you go through, like let's say yeah. eight, and then it's going to throw you off. So just, just go off a feel and really just try to focus on, you know, you can look at the clocks periodically when you see them on the course. They're probably every like 5K or at major mile markages where they do the splits. But, um, and you can calculate a little math in your head just if you want to know how you're doing. But just really the most important thing is to listen to your body um, and kind of have in your mind that idea of what, what range you want to be at, let's say at the halfway point. And then that way, hopefully when you cross, I mean, there's bound to be a clock at the halfway mark. So you can kind of do a check in there and see how you're doing, how you're feeling. Right. And I think for Chicago, kind of like Boston, there's, um, I've tracked a lot of athletes and there are timing mats every 5k. So that's going to be easier to notice than the mile markers. Cause the mile markers are going to be on either the left side, probably the right mm-hmm. side of the course, um, for most courses. And those are very easy to miss. Uh, if you're not really paying attention, um, cause I've done races before we're at the finish. People go, it wasn't marked. There were no mile markers. And I'm like, no, there was a mile marker every, every time. And like Jason said, um, very easy to, to miss. And then once you miss one mile marker, it's like, oh, well, then you kind of start to panic. So you could try doing it at every 5k and the timing mats, they're just going to be on the ground. And so there's probably gonna be a clock right there. And then the timing mat you go over, what does it look like for those who have never? It's just like a, maybe a one foot strip of like carpet over like a little one inch thing, if that, and cause you obviously you can't, it's not gonna be that high so you don't trip on it, but it'll just look like a little mat that goes across maybe 10 to 20 foot wide um, stretch of the street there. So every runner has to cross it. Yeah, um, and that's that's how but, people track you. Yeah, and I don't think there's really a need to even manually hit your own splits cause you can look at all this data later on their website. You'll be able to see your, all your splits. Yeah, yeah, but I think the biggest thing is people worrying, not knowing what pace they're supposed to go. Cause I mean, yeah. you gotta think back, like these people maybe have never had a Garmin before. Mm-hmm. Um, so for you, when you ran Chicago, I know you just went off of your watch time and then you looked at it, you know, at various spots on the yeah. course, probably at the half was the first time you looked at it in the first mile and just thought, okay, yeah, I know I what pace was. I'm going. Um, but if you're used to looking at that watch every mile, it can be really hard, um, to just go without knowing. So one recommendation that we have for our athletes, the two weeks leading into the race, cause they say it like the hay is technically in the barn, for like 15 to like 10 days leading up to the race, you actually will not be gaining any fitness at all. So what we have our athletes do is dial into race pace and learn their race pace. That's kind of like what the taper is for. And so any workouts that we're having athletes do during that period of the taper is really just to learn your race pace. And I know one workout that Skelly likes to give and that we've heard over and over again is you go to the track, you know, four days out and you're just going to do 400 meter repeats, but you're only doing them at your marathon pace. And this is a super hard exercise, um, mainly because when you do 400, you're used to going fast and it's really hard to practice that self-control. But when you dial in and you learn it, it's like you're teaching your muscles and muscle memory is huge. Have you ever done workouts like this to practice your marathon pacing? Is that how you kind of get in tune with it or what do you think? Yeah, exactly that. Um, because it essentially you don't want to rely on the watch. You want to rely on your body and the signals and your thoughts about your pace and just really keeping, keeping everything relaxed and, um, you know, being confident that you can maintain that pace for a long time. 
So Yeah, and I think that's huge. A lot of people are really reliant on technology, myself included. I am so bad. I mean, I look at the watch all the time, but I think the biggest thing is like just having confidence that your body knows what pace. Like even if you haven't practiced at all, maybe you're listening to this a day before the race and you're like, well, I haven't done that at all. You actually have during your training, you know, like your body is very smart and it's always sending you signals as to this is too fast. This is too slow. And just asking yourself, you know, when you're in that race, like, is this going to be sustainable for 24 more miles? Does this feel easy? And just asking and being open with yourself. And if, if it feels too hard, that's the signal that you should slow down. Um, you don't need a watch to tell you, oh, you're going, you know, nine minute pace instead of nine thirty pace. Your body can feel that you're going too fast and it will tell you. Um, and just listen to that. Don't panic. Cause I mean, we get in races where we go out a little bit too fast too. And we're like, oops, better, you know, dial it back a little bit. That's not, that's not a sign of anything wrong. That's just a sign that you have to dial into the right pace and it's, it's very common and don't be worried if you do go out too fast or you are confused as to what pace you're going. Just listen to your body. And my suggestion for the first half of any marathon, especially like this is if people are not passing you the first 10 miles of the race, you are probably going way too fast. What do you think? Yeah, I I definitely think so. Um, I, I don't think anyone's ever regretted not going out faster in a marathon so it's it's best to play like it should feel so easy you should feel like you're holding yourself back um and then you know halfway through you're gonna start to maybe get just start pressing down a little bit faster and and kind of like the the graphic you put out the other day I think that'd be a really good um thing for everyone to read through because that's how you should be thinking and that's how your mindset should be during that first half And I think the first couple miles, especially if you're not used to having your GPS working, you have no frame of reference for how fast you're going, but all of a sudden people are blowing by you. It's really hard to trust yourself, but listen to us and trust us when you say if people are blowing by you the first couple of miles and it feels way too easy for you and your watch isn't working, just relax because that's what happens when you're going the correct pace. When you're going the correct pace in a marathon, people will be passing you the first 10K. I mean, you just have to mentally prepare for that um, and just relax because that can be the, I think that's the hardest part of any marathon is the first 10 miles because you have to remain so calm, so relaxed. Do not let the adrenaline start kicking in. I mean, I think I saw someone post once on Instagram, in a marathon, you want adrenaline to be on a slow drip. Like this is not a 5K. You don't want that rush. You do not want to feel any sort of stress or big adrenaline hit at the beginning of the race. You don't want to dip into that at all until, you know, you're at least six to eight miles into the race. Then maybe you can like turn on the slow drip, but Mm -hmm. if people are going to pass you and that's going to be normal. So just when it's happening, just tell yourself to relax that you're going the correct pace. Um, and you're, you're going to be doing great. So even like start, start slow and then like start slower, you know? So you can track what that first mile is by manually turning off auto lap, then looking at what it is when you go through that first mile marker. And you're probably going to want to come through that first mile, you know, 30 to 20 seconds slower than your goal marathon pace. Um, and don't panic. That's, that's, that's good pacing. And then you're going to feel good at the end of the race. You'd rather feel good at the end of the race than the first mile. Trust us on that one. So do you have any other advice in terms of pacing or like navigating a foreign city? Um, I guess one thing we didn't really chat about 
was busing to the start line or like getting to the start line? Um, is there anything that you have done in your past that you would recommend people avoid or what's the best way to kind of get to the start line or get home from the finish? You know, every, every marathon is going to have on their website recommendations for how to get to the start. So, um, you know, if they provide shuttles, that might be the only option for you. And so you have to, you have to do it that way for, for Chicago. Um, definitely using the transportation in the city. Um, I know a lot of people take the train in because it comes in from every direction. So that's probably one of your best bets for Chicago. Um, You know, because a lot of times, I mean, if you can get dropped off downtown, great. Um, I guess that's an option too, but you want to allow yourself that extra time that you're going to need to find the porta potties, go to the bathroom and find the gear check and all that. So um, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Allotting for that extra time is super important, um, especially in a new city navigating. And for me personally, I'd rather be waiting out a little bit longer just to make sure, you know, all my ducks are in a row. I'm able to mm-hmm. get the bathroom and everything started first, um, rather than, you know, show up late or kind of miss, miss where I'm supposed to go. Cause sometimes, I mean, for the LA marathon, I will be honest, it, it's uh, sometimes a shock how long it takes to get to the start line. You know, they say on the website, just do these like two steps or whatever and you'll get there. But sometimes, you know, it takes uh, 45 minutes to get there from the start of their process. Um, and other times, you, you know, like on the way to CIM, our, our bus driver mm-hmm. actually went the wrong way. Yeah, they were doing construction. Um, and that, yep, it, yep. And we were on one of the first buses, but they went the wrong way and ended up taking about 75 minutes to get to the start. We did get there. It wasn't a problem, but things like that happen. So I always just like to be a little bit ahead of time um, on the ball because uh, you're kind of in someone else's hands at that point. Um so just allowing for that extra time for sure. Uh, and then in terms of meeting up with your family after, uh, how do you recommend people find their family or should they just have like a process that they, they both set up ahead of time or what's the best, the best way? Yeah, I think having an agreed upon location to meet at. Um, some people run with their phones, but if your battery's dead at the end, you're not going to be able to contact them. Um, I always check my phone and then I'll pick up my gear bag at the end and... Um, and then I'll look on my phone to see where people are. But I think, yeah, a lot of times you don't know where to meet because you're in a new area and you don't know what it's where there's a spot to meet. Some races do a good job of putting like those signs out with letters so you can go stand by like your last name. So you can talk about that ahead of time if that's going to be an option. Let's let's do it that way. Otherwise, um, maybe looking at the map ahead of time too um, and picking a, like a corner and intersection out on a street that's near the finish. And that way you can you know, have an estimated time of when you would arrive at that point. So right. um, if people, spectators can get to the area to see like the finish, you know, wherever athletes village is to see finishers come through the shoot, if they can kind of be off to the side and just looking for you that way too, and they can holler at you when they see you, that's a good, good way to go. And just from doing this so many times, it's bringing back so many memories here. Um, at the finish mm-hmm. line, it's, it's, you're not able to see your runner for a while after they finish um right. at these marathons bigger ones you know over 100 people it's it's completely closed off once they finish um it's going to be barricaded you're not probably going to be able to find them for a while so let's say you do happen to see them cross the finish line 
Um, you might say, well, what happened to them? Where'd they go? Uh, it, you're forced to like walk. Sometimes it's up to like a mile, especially in Chicago. I know it was kind of a long finish shoot. Um, and once you've raced 26.2 miles, it's really slow going. So, you know, your athlete is just kind of taking their time getting there. And, and sometimes, you know, you stop, you get food and it can take, you know, I usually think it takes 15 to 20 minutes to get to the end of it. And even there, sometimes uh, it takes them a while to actually exit and you're only allowed to exit in one area. So even if you do connect with them, like sometimes they have to walk all the way around and exit. And it's just, it can be extremely crowded, especially after, even at, Chi- yeah. even at Chicago, I was looking for Jason and he ran two, 246 and it started to get crowded around like 259. So, I mean, it just, it clogs up. Um, so if you're, if you're running four plus hours, it's going to be tough for you to find people, but just having the system in place and then just being patient and kind of allowing for that extra time. Um, that's why in my grab bag, I like to, my throwaway bag, I like to have, uh, a sweatshirt to keep warm Mm -hmm. because like, let's say your person's looking for you and they can't find you. Uh, it's good to be able to stay warm and not like panic and get hypothermic (laughs) after a while. Uh, do you have any other tips in terms of, you know, after you finish, like what, what should be the game plan? Mm, just kind of get what you need, like fuel wise, um, eat a little something, drink a little something, keep moving though, keep moving, get your gear bag, yes. find your family or whoever is going to make sure you get back to your hotel. A lot of times it's cold so that you, you've got to get out of those elements as soon as you can, um, and get, get in dry clothes. And, um, even if it's hot, I mean, you still want to kind of yeah get into the cool area too so um yeah the longer you stay out like i feel the harder it is the to warm to warm up sure. yeah and you're gonna start to get cold eventually yeah so but congratulate yourself and just be really proud of your accomplishment because it's amazing and going and traveling to a marathon i feel can add extra stress but it's definitely really rewarding to be able to say you know i ran a marathon in this state and it's really it's a fun experience if you just like take it all in but it does take a lot of extra planning and coordination on your part but it can be really worth it and then sharing your experiences with others um you you just always are learning and growing when you when you travel to new cities and you try new things so just enjoy it and then once you do cross that finish line just kind of soak it all in and then um you know showering fueling back up and finding a place you know to eat dinner and just celebrate and enjoy the rest of your trip um i hope that everyone has safe travels if you're traveling to a marathon and if you uh, are doing a local marathon, you know, good luck to you also. So good luck to everyone racing. I know this is a really busy time of year. And if you ever want to chat more about training or, you know, get a pacing plan for your race coming up, like we definitely do consultations here and we would love to hear from you, chat with you, help you. Um, you can fill out the form at www.run, the number four, prs.co, run for prs.co. And we can chat with you today, you know, about options for training and just help you with any questions that you might have. So good luck and until next time.